Hey, good morning and welcome to Money Management with Mike Mail. This is Jim Harvey, president of Opus 111 Group. Today, I'm substituting for your regular host, Mike Mail, who's a senior vice president of our firm and oversees our Spokane branch. Like Mike's show last week, we are continuing to pre-record this show in order to help KXLY 920 comply with the governor's shelter-in-place order and to protect the station staff and their employees from the outbreak of the coronavirus. Therefore, this is not the usual Saturday morning show in which you can call in with your questions. Naturally, we look forward to returning to the normal call-in format as soon as everyone's health and safety can be assured. However, in the meantime, if you have any questions you'd like us to address in future money management shows, please email them to info at opus111group.com and we will either answer them directly or during next week's show. We also encourage and invite you to visit our website for the latest on the markets, the coronavirus, and how you might best respond. Today, after bringing you up to speed on the week that was in the markets and some key economic news, I want to provide you with some perspective on what we expect for 2021, given the economy, the coronavirus, and the stock, bond, and real estate market. Specifically, I will cover uh, uh, real estate. Uh, how does the economic slowdown, recovery, capital investment, and longer-term prospects look given the impact of the coronavirus and the way in which it's affected the four major segments of the investment real estate market. Those are apartments, retail, office, and industrial. We will also cover the domestic and international equity markets and talk a little bit about uh, the rotation away from uh, U.S. large cap growth assets to large cap value assets and others. Uh, the, the thought that we have about small caps being a place to look, and also the likelihood of a weaker dollar and enhance expectations of returns from international and emerging markets. Uh, we will also discuss interest rates in the bond markets. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Fed stance as President Biden takes office next week and combating the virus and the uh, economy that's been so affected. We also want to uh, bring up the issue about changing your thinking a bit on the normal 60-40 stock bond split that so many people use in their retirement uh, plans. Um, and then finally, where we think there's value. In each area, we're going we're gonna to try to concentrate and give you uh, some ideas about steps you might consider taking, including profit taking on uh, large cap growth and appreciated stocks. Uh, portfolio structure, and also things in your personal financial lives like mortgage refinancing and the like. In market news, the U.S. stock market indices had a pretty choppy week. S&P and Dow were down slightly at 0.22 and 0.16, respectively. The NASDAQ closed the week up 0.35%. The Russell 2000, the small cap index, was up 1.49%. Uh, in Europe, the FTSE was up one12 and uh, the Japanese stock market up 1.35 for the week. Um, closing prices, S&P closed at 3768.25, the Dow at 30,814, the NASDAQ at just shy of 13,000, 12,998, the Russell at 2,123.20. Um, also, uh, in terms of the, the relative performance uh, on a year-to-date basis, um, you know, it's been flat. Uh, the S&P is up 0.32, the Dow's up 0.68, 
the Nasdaq's up 0.86. The Russell of 2000, however, is up seven and a half. Um, and, and, and then if you compare that to uh, last year, the S&P was up 16, uh, the Dow was up seven, the NASDAQ last year was up 43, and the Russell 2000 was up 18. So uh, interesting stuff on the small cap stocks. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about that a little later. I want to talk about real estate uh, and the implications of the coronavirus and the economy, uh, the economic impacts on real estate. Um, when I was in college, I studied uh, uh, English literature, and uh, one of the uh, novels I studied was, was Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. And I think the beginning of that book is appropriate to, to kick us off here. Uh, as he wrote, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. As you look at the coronavirus and the economic impacts of this of the shutdown globally, it's pretty clear a lot of change is coming, which we should not be naive about. Um, so if you're feeling overly anxious about it under the arc of history, I don't think you need to worry about it as uh, being as dramatic as some commentators suggest. And, you know, don't forget what the, the acronym FEAR stands for, which, which I love, which is false evidence appearing real. We're still in the middle of a, a global pandemic, and it's important not to come to radical conclusions when you're sitting in the middle of a crisis. But there are some trends that we're seeing that, that uh, emerge that, will keep, uh, that we will keep a close eye on as we look at the next year. First of all, the first observation is a blurring of lines. The lines between home, work, and play will continue to blur, affecting the traditional separate investment allocations that we make uh, as investors in office, industrial, logistics, living, and housing sectors. Um, the second thing is experience versus practicality. The bar for how real estate is judged will increasingly tilt towards how a person feels in a space versus how practical and efficient it is. So that's another way of saying, however things have been built to date, that's probably going to change uh, because people and workers have more options about using technology about where they work and, and where they're going to feel most productive. Another trend which is inescapable is sustainability. Uh, environmental, social, and governance initiatives will continue to bring a wave of change. Not only will people look for ways to integrate the live, work, play aspects of their lives, but they will also look for a more sustainable balance. Now, uh, in the retail uh, segment, obviously, we've had a lot of uh, impact. And so, you know, uh, department stores and, and retailers have been hit hard, but not all retail is, is, is doing badly. You know, I still can't find a, a parking space uh, within sight of the door of Costco, and that's a retailer. So it, it is interesting to see that. Um, in the U.S. office markets, that's the area where we really think people don't have a good idea of how to forecast the change because, you know, major tenants in, in, in skyscraper buildings and downtowns in Chicago, New York and Seattle, uh, Boston, they are really going to wonder about whether or not, you know, they need as big a footprint as they have had. Um, so that's a, that's an area. Um, now, um, there are some segments, uh, you know, apartment buildings have done uh, well and will continue to do well. 
uh, although downtown apartment buildings and places like, for example, Seattle and, and San Francisco are changing because people are saying, you know what, uh, I need a little bit more room. <laughs> I always find it interesting when you find young people that have that either freshly married or may have one kid thinking, oh, I can raise my kid here. You have the second kid, you want a yard. So I think uh, there's going to be an outward migration. And we're seeing that in places like the Bay Area, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, Nash, uh, Seattle, etc. We're also seeing an interesting shift away from some of the major metropolitan areas because of telecommunicating or uh, telecommuting uh, to what we call lifestyle changes like places like Austin, uh, Boulder, um, and Sacramento in the in the Bay Area. So with that in mind, there could be some significant changes there. The one area that has really not done badly at all is industrial because that's really logistics. So warehousers, so think Amazon warehouses and that kind of thing. Um, and while that sector hasn't had much of a downside, um, there may be uh, examples of oversupply in, in specific areas. In any case, uh, this gives you an idea of real estate. Now, this is not to, to, to deal with, you know, your house, um, but it, it has to do with allocating uh, assets on an investment basis. Uh, and I just think as you look at the recovery, just don't be too sure that the comfortable assumptions about how things have recovered in the past is a great way to describe what we might expect this time. Um, I want to talk about real estate uh, and the implications of the coronavirus and the economy, uh, the economic impacts on real estate. When I was in college, I studied uh, uh, English literature, and uh, one of the uh, novels I studied was, was Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. And I think the beginning of that book is appropriate to, to kick us off here. Uh, as he wrote, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. As you look at the coronavirus and the economic impacts of, this, of the shutdown globally, it's pretty clear a lot of change is coming, which we should not be naive about. Um, so if you're feeling overly anxious about it under the arc of history, I don't think you need to worry about it as, as being as dramatic as some commentators suggest. And you know, don't forget what the the acronym FEAR stands for, which which I love, which is false evidence appearing real. We're still in the middle of a, a global pandemic, and it's important not to come to radical conclusions when you're sitting in the middle of a crisis. But there are some trends that we're seeing that that uh, emerge that will keep uh, that we will keep a close eye on as we look at the next year. First of all, the first observation is a blurring of lines. The lines between home, work, and play will continue to blur, affecting the traditional separate investment allocations that we make uh, as investors in office, industrial, logistics, living, and housing sectors. Um, the second thing is experience versus practicality. The bar for how real estate is judged will increasingly tilt towards how a person feels in a space versus how practical and efficient it is. So that's another way of saying, however things have been built to date, that's probably going to change uh, because people and workers have more options about using technology about where they work 
and, and where they're going to feel most productive. Another trend which is inescapable is sustainability. Uh, environmental, social, and governance initiatives will continue to bring a wave of change. Not only will people look for ways to integrate the live, work, play aspects of their lives, but they will also look for a more sustainable balance. And then finally, public-private par partnerships. Um, historically, there hasn't been a lot of cooperation between governments and the private sector with respect to uh, real estate. But as things change in major cities, and we're seeing outward migrations of employees leaving the cities for places with more space, uh, governments may have to be uh, a little bit more um, you know, uh, creative uh, and reach out to talk to, to a private sector, a private sector, to see how they can uh, work to uh, uh, attract people back to the city. So, we already knew that there was a risk of a market correction as we headed into 2020, but no one could have predicted a global pandemic and its wide-ranging impact on the communities in which we live and work. From an economic perspective, this downturn has been unprecedented in, in its suddenness and magnitude. As such, the recovery is likely to be unlike any other as well. Now, this is an important point because when you think about it, it's it's uh, it's easy to look back historically and say, well, you know, back in this crisis, the credit crisis, then here's what happened in the real estate market. But that had to do with the actual underlying economics. This has to do with something that's a biological event. And while it came on suddenly, the way in which it recovers might fundamentally be different because of some of the things that we're seeing. Um, so there's that. Uh, now, we already know that people were changing the way they interact with real estate prior to the pandemic, and the virus has just shifted that further. So as an example, you know, there were some companies that had people working remotely, uh, but now I would say 90% of the people out there are working in some form remotely if they're working. And so uh, I know as a boss, you know, my my staff, I mean, I'm in the office, but but my staff are, are very comfortable working uh, remotely. At some point, they'll come back to the office, but maybe not five days a week. So that has an effect on, on how real estate uh, is valued, uh, uh, lease holdings and that kind of thing with respect to negotiating leases and that kind of thing. So um, now, um, the, the, the one thing that I wanted to, to talk about is, let's talk about the retail uh, business and what businesses have been affected. It's pretty obvious. I mean, businesses such as restaurants, beauty salons, uh, health uh, clubs, and probably most importantly, tourism and travel outfits have suffered disproportionately. Um, and meanwhile, technology, transportation, warehousing, living sectors have actually been boosted by the pandemic, given the jump in telecommuting, e-commerce, investment in homes, as, as those who can stay at home are actually staying at home. Um, however, at some point, hopefully during the second part of 2021, we can see a reversal of many of those. Pent-up demand for travel and personal services is like to be significant as the virus is largely eradicated, at least in uh, developed economies. As demand returns, hotel occupancies could approach record highs by the end of next year, or this year rather, as both personal and travel, uh, uh, business travel resumes and the conference industry emerges from its virtual reality slumber. I live downtown in Seattle, right next to the giant new convention center uh, being built. And I must admit, I've been thinking, wow, what's that gonna be like uh, as we move forward. Um, 
Now, uh, in the retail uh, segment, obviously, we've had a lot of uh, impact. And so, you know, uh, department stores and, and retailers have been hit hard, but not all retail is, is, is doing badly. You know, I still can't find a, a parking space uh, within sight of the door of Costco. And that's a retailer. So it, it is interesting to see that. Um, in the US office markets, that's the area where we really think people don't have a good idea of how to forecast the change because, you know, major tenants in, in, in skyscraper buildings and downtowns in Chicago, New York and Seattle, uh, Boston, they are really going to wonder about whether or not, you know, they need as big a footprint as they have had. Um, so that's a, that's an area. Um, now, um, there are some segments, uh, you know, apartment buildings have done uh, well and will continue to do well. Uh, although downtown apartment buildings and places like, for example, Seattle and, and San Francisco are changing because people are saying, you know what, uh, I need a little bit more room. <laughs> I always find it interesting when you find young people that have that either freshly married or may have one kid thinking, oh, I can raise my kid here. You have the second kid, you want a yard. So I think uh, there's going to be an outward migration. And we're seeing that in places like the Bay Area, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, Nash, uh, Seattle, et cetera. We're also seeing an interesting shift away from some of the major metropolitan areas because of telecommunicating or uh, telecommuting uh, to what we call lifestyle changes like uh, places like Austin, uh, Boulder, um, at Sacramento in the in the Bay Area. So with that in mind, there could be some significant changes there. The one area that has really not done badly at all is industrial because that's really logistics. So warehousers, so think Amazon warehouses and that kind of thing. Um, and while that sector hasn't had much of a downside, um, there may be uh, examples of oversupply in, in specific areas. In any case, uh, this gives you an idea of real estate. Now, this is not to, to, to deal with, you know, your house, um, but it, it has to do with allocating uh, assets on an investment basis. Uh, and I just think as you look at the recovery, just don't be too sure that the comfortable assumptions about how things have recovered in the past is a great way to describe what we might expect this time. All right, so now I want to talk about international and domestic equity markets or stock market. Um, you know, obviously, the coronavirus has had a pretty major impact on the uh, stock market uh, uh, back in, in March and April, where we saw the S&P drop 37%. But you know, a question that a lot of people are asking is, well, with the economy sort of doing what it what it's done, we've had a recession, uh, and and still we've got you know higher unemployment than we want, and that kind of thing. Why is the stock market up so much? And on previous shows, I I have uh, talked about this, and I tell my clients this all the time. Look, when you throw seven trillion dollars at a problem between what the Fed has done and what Congress has done in stimulus, and what Congress will probably do now that Biden uh, is the president and they control the Senate and the House. We're going to see more stimulus. Of course, the stock market is anticipating that. I think investors are looking past COVID kind of like it's a one-time thing. And, uh, and so as a result, uh, there's been sort of broad-based, uh, uh, you know, upward trends. But there's, there's stuff bubbling below the surface that I think is important. Um, and so let's keep that in mind. Now, there's some broad sort of 
observations or thoughts that we have that I wanted to share with you. First of all, the, the spread between growth and value has never been as high and extreme as it is, as it is right now, meaning that uh, large cap growth names have outperformed value for pretty much the last 12 years, but the, the, the separation is as high as it's ever been. Uh, we do expect economic growth to accelerate in 2021, particularly in the third and fourth quarters, because we are assuming that the uh, reaching out of the virus uh, uh, vaccine will will help. Uh, but there are some things that you you need to to keep in mind. If we go into a recession, value has outperformed growth in 14 of the last 14 recessions, and yet. We haven't really seen one. That recession <clears throat> at the beginning of last year was predominantly a biological event that was quickly uh, uh, corrected because of that infusion of money from the Fed and Congress. So uh, uh, of those, if you're looking at value, and we're seeing a rotation to value as a very strong likelihood, the cyclical value sectors stand to benefit more, most from the economic recovery. I'm going to go over the sectors of the uh of the uh, S&P and, and tell you which ones have done well, which ones should do well. Um, we also think there's a shift in interest rates and inflation may be more of a factor in the, on the horizon. Uh, and we also think in looking at this uh, rotation of value that it's not a trade, that, that it may be a more sustainable uh, change uh, with respect to that. So for example, um, value stocks ha have re had reacted very negatively to the COVID news, particularly in the area of energy, capital goods, banks, and automobiles. Uh, but th there were other sectors that did quite well, like technology, semiconductors, healthcare, and household products. However, uh, the news of the vaccine, value stocks have dramatically outperformed growth. So value stocks are up roughly 25%, whereas growth stocks are down 30, uh, and the big growers were down about um, 25. So, so, I mean, the fact is that we're starting to see signs of that, and that's important. We're also seeing signs of small cap stocks being much more of a factor. Uh, now, I remember having a conversation with a portfolio manager, actually an equity strategist of a major firm, and I asked him about small caps uh, in, kind of in April of last year. And his reaction was, well, don't buy small caps because they're gonna be a lot of bankruptcies. And, 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 and also they haven't participated in the, in the bull market since 2008. I said, yeah, exactly. Except that in the first quarter they were down 41% and they didn't uh, contribute to the down, uh, you know, to the, to the bull market. So why wouldn't you buy them? And so, of course, we talked to our clients and, and had them uh, reach out and, and buy some small caps, and they have been very positively responded since then, <clears throat> where they're up 40 50%. But that doesn't mean that, that it's over. And I do think that small cap stocks are going to recover. There will be some consolidation. There will be some bankruptcies. But, but we also think that it, because it hasn't really participated, that there's room for growth there. In terms of uh, domestic versus international, one of the things that we do and have done forever is we have a globally diversified approach to building portfolios. We don't try to figure out, is, it, is this the time to you know, get all my, my eggs in the, in the international basket or the domestic basket? No, we have both. So 
we have international developed in Europe, we have international developed in, in other parts of the world, we have emerging markets. And so our clients, of course, will never do as well as if they had nothing but domestic stocks when the domestic stocks are favored, but they also don't do as poorly when it drops. <clears throat> so right now, when you look at Europe, uh, Japan, emerging markets, and the US, uh, you know, and we get more input from all these different sources of, uh, of mutual funds and, and ETFs that we work with in these companies. Right now, the, 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 the view uh, uh, on the U.S. is uh, getting towards the unfavorable part, whereas Europe is, is maybe the, the most attractive. Uh, Japan is an overlooked market with improving capital discipline. And emerging markets are attractive, but clearly are higher risk. So we think that that coupled with the fact that uh, if inflation occurs more, that the dollar may weaken, that uh, this may be a time to make sure that you've got an allocation in the international areas. If we're looking at the three sectors that we think look the best to us right now, that might be surprising. Uh, financials, meaning banks uh, that are cheap, uh, and they have multiple potential catalysts, uh, improving cre credit quality, a steepening yield curve, which always benefits them, ongoing strong capital markets activity, mean uh, raising of capital and the like. Another area would be materials, which is another beneficiary of a rotation into cyclical value stocks, as well as uh, if commodities and inflation, uh, if inflation goes up, commodities tend to do well. And healthcare, which you know, I don't think anybody needs to think about the implications of healthcare. Um, so that I think that's good. The areas that we think are perhaps the least favored uh, are industrials. Um, so recent ETF flows suggest that the sector is becoming too popular. Uh, there are less expensive ways to gain cyclical e e exposure. REITs, uh, obviously, because of the real estate uh, things that we talked about in the previous segment. Uh, but COVID-19 has accelerated secular changes for retail and urban office landlords, no question, and REITs are a place probably to avoid. And interestingly enough, information technology, not because it isn't exciting and it has growth prospects, but because it's too expensive. So regulatory scrutiny, uh, higher taxes on foreign source earnings and our principal risks there. So, you know, that's, that's a, 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 you know, kind of an interesting overall mix. We think that it's important that you, you don't think about timing the market in, in, in equities, but this is a time to take a look at trimming some profits out of your large cap growth names. So we've been systematically trimming. Uh, I did a piece, uh, you can go to our website and go to the learn page. I did a piece on Tesla and that was kind of an interesting one where I looked at Tesla by itself and its market value at the time was like 745 billion. Uh, but it did $28 billion in revenue compared to nine car companies, uh, uh, names that you all would recognize, but it's BMW and Mercedes and, and Nissan and Honda and Ford and Chrysler and, and Fiat. Uh, and and uh, they had less market value than Tesla, uh, about $650 billion. And <laughs> Uh, they did $1.3 trillion in business. So there are examples of companies everybody falls in love with, Tesla being one of them right now. Elon Musk just became the richest man in the world, surpassing 
uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. Uh, but I would ask you, which company would you feel more comfortable owning, Tesla or Amazon? Um, I think I know the answer to that. All right, now I want to turn our attention to interest rates in the bond market. Obviously, uh, it's, a, it's a critical part of anyone's portfolio. I do want to start out by discussing the, the Fed stance as President Biden takes office next week um, and the implication of what they're continuing to do to combat the virus and, and bolster the economy. I think it's interesting to note that uh, his choice for Treasury Secretary is former Fed Chairman Janet Yellen. And I think that's a good thing because that means that there's going to be a direct connection between Treasury and the Fed that we haven't seen in years, if at all. And so uh, I think it's likely that the Fed will continue to do what it's doing, holding interest rates down, but their, their sort of dual responsibility for holding inflation down while also stimulating the economy. Uh, now, one of the things that I wanted to do just by way of a perspective is that when I got into the business in 1983 and was working with Mike Mail up in Alaska, interest rates were at like staggering high. I mean, money market rates were 18% the year before I got in the business in 1983. You could still buy U.S. Treasury bonds with coupons of of 16 and 17%. Tax-free bonds you could buy from 12 to 14%. And obviously, when you look at today's rates, where you know, treasuries are down below 1% on a 10-year um, and below 3% on a 30-year. On a I mean, these are substantially different numbers. And that has an implication that we need to keep in mind because as you consider that most retired folks and most people nearing retirement have portfolios of 60% allocation to equities and 40% allocation to bonds, how likely is it that that you could account on the same total return from a 60-40 allocation when the expectations for equity returns are not 8, 10, or 12%, but maybe 5 to 6, and bonds you can't get, you know, 8, 12, 8, 6, 8, and 10%, you're lucky to get 2, 3. So obviously that puts pressure on the system and it raises the question about how do you get the cash flow from the fixed income that you previously could count on uh, in an environment in which coupons are as low as they are. And that is a very important thing. Now, I'm going to take a lot of the stuff that we're about ready to, to uh, discuss from the Capital Group's uh, 2021 outlook. Um, we're going to be hosting a, a Zoom call for our clients about this later this month. Um, and uh, in particular, we're going to just talk about you know, the bond market and the implication on all of this. Uh, now, first of all, the first thing to note is whether rates are up or down flat, core bonds have delivered. And high qual quality core bond funds absolutely helped staunch losses and balance portfolios during 2020's equity bear market. Uh, amid the sharp volatility, these bonds did exactly what they were designed to do, which is to preserve capital and diversify equities. But now that the markets have calmed, you might think that the need for strong core bonds is over. It isn't. According to Mike Gitlin, the head of fixed income at Capital Group, quote, no matter what the environment, a high quality core bond fund is critical to act as a ballast and fortify your portfolio for whatever the future holds. While total returns may be more modest, well, Mike, I have to say that's that's a bit of an understatement. Um, 
in the in the coming years the the, the need for diversification capital preservation income and inflation protection in a balanced portfolio hasn't lessened so put another way you still need to get what you need to get uh and that need has not changed now when you look back at at the history of interest rates since 2003 and study how the Barclays uh, U.S. Aggregate Bond Index held up, it tells you some stuff about whether, uh, it basically tells you that Mike is actually right. So when the Federal Reserve hikes, hiked rates more than four percentage points back in 2003 uh, at four and five, the, the U.S. Aggregate Bond still had a positive return of 1.8%. When the rates sat at their zero bound during most of the recovery, starting in 2008, following the financial crisis, core bonds gained an average annual uh, uh, amount of 4.3%. And even uh, during the last four or five years, uh, with rates going up and then coming back down, a mix uh, basically still provi provided a 4% return. <clears throat> so that's great. Uh, but don't forget, if you've got coupons of 16% and rates move up 1%, that's an, a, a relatively small uh, percentage, but if you have rates at 1% and rates go up 1%, uh, then you've got a major problem because you're gonna lose a lot of principal. So with that in mind, then where do you go? Well, in the past where people have gone is they've gone into junk bonds where they've taken credit risk with corporate bonds that aren't as highly uh, ranked as others. And after big inflows into corporate bonds over the last few years, I think it's really important to be selective. Corporate bonds have seen tremendous demand in recent years, driven by both low interest rates and a strong US economy. Uh, but uh, obviously credit is more of an issue. And so uh, according to uh, portfolio manager, Damon McCann, credit sectors still offer value, but selectivity is critical. Buying corporate bonds indiscriminately could provide a portfolio with some winners, but also some losers using research to understand issuers and how their debt is likely to fare can help reveal which bonds are more likely to provide value and avoid downgrades. Well, that raises a really important issue because our industry over the last few years have been susceptible to John Bogle's thought, you know, just give me the bond market, just give me the stock market. But the problem with that is that's indiscriminate is exactly what, what uh, that portfolios manager was saying not to do. So an active manager is a better place to park money because they have people doing specific research on specific bonds rather than saying, oh, this money's coming in. We're going to buy these bonds. I don't care what they're rated. That's a problem in the fixed income market. Now, don't forget the fixed income market is much larger than the stock market, but it's also much more inefficient because, for example, I think I did this on a show a couple of, a couple of shows back where we looked at uh, you know, General Electric having one common stock symbol, but like 5,000 bond symbols, because there are 5,000 separate bonds that they have. Well, that's a problem. So it's harder to keep track of 5,000 separate uh, securities because each one is unique. Now, another area that we have liked for a long time is municipal bonds or tax-free bonds. We think they continue to look attractive for tax advantage income. But is the Muni meltdown that happened in March of 2020 truly in the rearview mirror or a sign of things to come? So a lot of people are saying, oh, my gosh, you know, states and localities and counties might go bankrupt. Uh, some people say, let them go bankrupt. I, I don't agree. Don't forget that what happened in the, 
in March and April in the fixed income market was very dramatic and it was made far less dramatic and less of an issue and too easy to gloss over as a result of the $7 trillion that flowed into the market. The Fed's balance sheet exploded uh, by more than four and maybe even five trillion dollars. And then there was a lot of money coming from the Congress as well. So you you really uh, can't just look at what the prices have done and say, oh, you know, it's not a problem, because there was a lot of money that was behind that. However, we still think that there are pockets of value, even in some hard hit sectors. And when you look at the COVID crisis and its implications, uh, you know, obviously there, there are some local governments with major budget gaps as, as a result of lost tax revenue. Other sectors have been hit hard. Think empty seats on public transportation, vacant dorm rooms. But there is a silver lining uh, uh, in all of this, and that is improved income potential and tax benefits. Now, you know, one of the obvious things that people are concerned about with a, a Democratic uh, uh, hold on the, the House, the Senate, and, and the White House is increased taxes. Obviously, if taxes increase, that will make municipal bonds more valuable to own because your tax rates will go up. We don't happen to think it's going to go up by much, uh, but you never know. According to uh, Capital Group Fixed Income Portfolio Manager Carl Zelli, markets could remain choppy through 2021 as the economic downturn continues to reverberate and revenues fall short. Returns among municipals will, I believe, vary more widely. It's just the kind of environment where active managers like us can really prove our mettle. And I think that's the point. Now, we are, uh, as, a, as a firm, Opus, uh, uh, strong believers in active management, uh, but also will use passive uh, uh, vehicles when when uh, appropriate and necessary. Uh, but I think that's that's important. So there may be higher yields offered by certain bonds, uh, uh, but you, you need somebody doing active research on that. Finally, I just want to uh, kind of uh, summarize by by the fact that Capital Group uh, did a, a study of uh, 4,000 advisors to see how their portfolios were allocated. They found a couple things. They were f uh, like three times more allocated to U.S. equities than international, and that also they were taking a lot of risk on the fixed income side to try to generate yield. Now, we think that's important uh, to consider. However, uh, we also think it's perfectly acceptable to take some profits and park money on the sidelines and see uh, and wait for the virus and see what happens. But to, to, to see where the value is right now, we actually think international and especially emerging market bonds are an opportunity. They're risky because it is emerging markets, uh, but there are better and worse ways to do everything. Uh, however, you can get a pretty good yield. So by keeping some money in cash, but maybe allocating a small percentage uh, to uh, something that generates a high yield, it's called barbelling. Uh, we like that. And if you want to learn more about that, please feel free to contact us. Thanks for tuning in this morning. We hope that you and your families have a safe, happy, and healthy 2021. Feel free to visit our website at opus111group.com, particularly the Learn page, where you will find recordings of this show, Mike's show, my own uh, Your Money Week video podcasts, audio casts, and other information you might find useful as you navigate these best and worst of times in achieving your financial and retirement goals. 
Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.